I got the absolute privilege to have a chat with Deb Dana, one member of my polyvagal trinity. She's the first clinician to take Dr. Porter's work and make it understandable and applicable for the rest of us. She and I discussed the stories we create to explain our state, climbing the polyvagal ladder, and mental health diagnoses. My name is Justin Sincero. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and your fellow trauma nerd. Welcome to the Polyvagal Podcast. All right, so I think my audience has a pretty good understanding of the fundamentals of the polyvagal theory. Perfect. <laughs> the story follows state, though, I think is really, and that's your phrasing right there, right? And I, I say it all the time, and hopefully I've given you enough credit because it's huge. How would you, I don't feel like I adequately ex- describe the story follows state, so how, how would you do that? Right, so so for me, and and it's sort of that putting things on, on, on its head, you know, polyvagal theory in, in the clinical world is a paradigm shift. So we're asking people to to look at things differently. And one of the things is that story follows state, that your autonomic state um, comes to life and then um, it, the information's fed up to your brain and your brain's job is to make sense of what's happening in the body. So it makes up a story. And the stories that emerge from dorsal, sympathetic, and ventral are very different, right? Because, the you know, from... From dorsal, a story that um, I'm safe and this is going to be a easy interview, it's not supported, right? From sympathetic, you know, the story probably is, oh, my God, I'm nervous. I don't know what to say. But from ventral, <laughs> the story is, oh, Justin and I are just going to have a really nice conversation, see where it goes. So you can see how the story changes depending on my state, not depending on what I choose to think, right? So when I'm working with with clients, I'm always, you know, they'll they'll tell me something, some, you know, a, a bit of story. We'll say that makes perfect sense because you are in whichever state you're in. You know, I, I have a, a a very simple little little um, practice that I use with my clients. Is, you know, I call it um, looking through three states or listening to three states, whichever. And so, you know, it's it's sort of that that simple thing of take a very simple. Um, experience something that's that's not really dysregulating just something very simple and then imagine that you're looking at it through the eyes of sympathetic through the eyes of dorsal and then through the eyes of ventral and just see what's the story that emerges from those places and i think clients often have a a very powerful um, response to that and so it's it's sort of your way into saying so there you're feeling the power of your nervous system to create your daily experience. It, it is a really powerful to to see the difference. And mm-hmm. I like when with clients that they come in to session in a certain place and they have a certain story to go along with that. But by the end of the session, same mm-hmm. situation, same facts, but the story has changed. And to be able to say, to see mm-hmm. where, where that, and it wasn't, we didn't exactly do any special techniques or anything. It was just a lot of co-regulation, mm-hmm. uh, safety mm-hmm. cues. They come up right. the ladder. It's a whole different, yeah. Right. So yeah. the story is not just during the state shift, but it's also if you exist in a state of dorsal or shutdown, mm-hmm. your story mm-hmm. is just perpetually filtered. Yeah, and then I, I like to, to to say we we have a sort of an autonomic profile that gets created over our over our life. Um, recently, I've been talking about you know our our preferred home. Hopefully, is in ventral. That's what we're aiming for. We have a home in ventral, but then I've become to say we have a home away from home. Right. And so what's your home away from home? You know, my nervous system was shaped so that my home away from home is dorsal. Right. So that's kind of where I go. Right. What's yours? I'm starting to realize more and more it's dorsal. And if you'd asked me when I started the podcast in February, I'm in a pretty Uh safe and social place. And for the most part, I think I still am. But I'm realizing I very easily go into this. I want to hide and I do very well when I'm alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have a home and a home away from home. You yeah, know? And, yeah. And and because I have a lot of dorsal flavor running in the background, um, if I begin to feel a bit challenged in my ventral, the, the, the story that emerges is usually one that has a dorsal flavor, right? So it's sort of lurking there waiting, which I think is true for all of us. I think our, our and I think we also have a, a sort of a, a theme to our dysregulated stories like you know mine might be um you know i'm not you know who do i think i am i'm not you know worthy of being seen yours might be i'm not you know i'm invisible nobody wants to see whatever it is but we so we have a theme to those 
um, to those stories. And that I think is what we see with us. We see with our clients, the theme, right? Absolutely. It's interesting that even just saying home away from home is, is that a new story in and of itself? Because I hear that and I'm like, oh, that's so normalizing yes. for wanting yes. to be in this, not, sorry, not wanting to be in shutdown, but for sort of going there for, so right, that's, easily. That's, yeah. That's where I visit. That's, that's where, you know, my system was shaped. And I think if, if one of the most important recognitions that I've had from the teaching that I've done over the past couple of years is that because my system is, is shaped to um, move into dorsal and it's the, the state that people don't talk about much that I really normalize it. And then we have these great conversations in groups and, and groups of people whose home away from home is dorsal get together and they talk and there's this lovely sense of, oh, it's not something to be ashamed of, right? It's just, it's just a biological place that, that I go to. That's exactly what I was thinking is I know, and I'm thinking about the people who are listening, plus I'm taking it in, plus yes. I'm, um, yeah. but the shame part of it and the judgment part of our state and of our stories and yeah. saying home away from home, there's an acceptance of there's just a biological thing going on here. But yes. I know a lot of my listeners and readers yeah. that yeah. there's, they haven't quite gotten there quite towards gotten. the normalcy part of it. Right, right. You know, it's like when when you're working with someone or even someone in your life who's who's dysregulated, if you can look across the way and say, oh, that's a dysregulated nervous system. Right, then that begins to help. And if you can say, oh, it's not that he doesn't want to be in connection with me, it's that his biology won't let him right now, then that again helps to give it a different story. Right. It's, it's because we are story making beings. That's what we do as humans. But I'd like the story to be based in the biology. Right. What's your autonomic story? Not what's your cognitive story. Let's start there. I like how you um, and we're dancing all over my outline here, which is <laughs> we're already hitting on things here. The different that is differentiated between story and your autonomic state. And mm -hmm. I, I was literally just watching an interview right before I talked to you here. Mm -hmm. um, and we see, I'm trying to find it on my outline. Um, you called it, oh, neural exercises? Yep. The story versus yep. the body state. And that in therapy that you, I don't know if exclusively, but I know you work with body state and story, mm -hmm. but there's yeah. also just the piece of just the body state. Yeah, I like to start there because, you know, as you said, clients come in and they have this story to tell. And, you know, I, I, I like to, I'm a fairly active therapist when I'm working I say so you know time out can, can we stop there a minute because I really would like to hear this story but I'd like first for us to arrive here and, and get connected because they're telling a story that's coming out of a survival state rather than a ventral place so it's going to do neither of us any good right so you know we start there and then I often tell my clients that that um, I think you've told that story so many times that you're really an expert at telling it, but I'd like us to listen to your autonomic story because I'll bet you haven't heard that one yet. You know, and then we sort of enter in there because we do want to be witnessed. Absolutely, it's part of the healing process to be witnessed, but I like to start by witnessing the, the nervous system story first, and then when we're regulated, we'll move up, and then I really do want to hear what's important for me to know, right? Is that have a lot to do with the process of befriending? I think it's, you say it's the first step, right? Yeah, I've got to befriend. And so many of us have a hard time doing that. And befriending involves some self-compassion, right? Which also is hard to, to get to. How does somebody, because I'm, you know, I'm thinking about the people I work with and people mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. listen, yeah. how do you befriend yourself when you have, when you're full of these stories and judgments and blame and shame and, and then to say, yeah. oh, I'll be friends with myself. How, how does that happen? Right. Well, you know, it, you know, Steve has that wonderful foundational um, belief that everything is, is an adaptive survival response, right. right? I'm a, I'm a trauma therapist. So what I say is every behavior is a, in service of survival. Everything is in service of survival, no matter how crazy it looks, <laughs> your nervous system has enacted something because it's, it's trying to keep you alive. So if we could start there, and just, you know, bring that in. And then what I help my clients do is really get to know their nervous system before they can befriend it. So we got to get to know mm. it. we got to map it. we got to know what does ventral, sympathetic, and dorsal look like for you? How does it come alive? And, you know, what does it feel like when it's here? And then those two um, statements that I have on my 
my map that I use, um, when you're in each state to fill in the sentences, the world is and I am. Because those two sentences are the core beliefs that are at work when you are in that state. You know, and so just that's a way of getting to know. So I guess we get to know and then we can begin to befriend because then it yeah. begins to make sense that, oh, of course, of course, I think everybody's against me when I'm in sympathetic, you know, because moving into sympathetic, that's the, that's the, that's the feeling. You've now become my enemy, not my friend. I no longer care about social engagement because my biology simply wants to keep me alive. Right. And then I tell people endorse. So if, if in sympathetic, you're my enemy in dorsal, you don't exist. Right. Because in dorsal, I'm just out there floating on my own somewhere. So only in ventral can we do this. Before we even can befriend, it's really just learning these new pieces of information, mm -hmm. which yeah. just these um, facts, I guess. Right. Mm -hmm. Just these yep. new pieces of information. I hear that a lot is that now I understand this and it's so freeing that it, yes. it's, it kind of yes. it takes away some enough of the judgment to be able to look a little bit more. Right. Inward. Right. Because when, when when we begin to take away some of that 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 judgment, that that self-criticism, then there's room for curiosity and curiosity is what you need in order to be front. Right. In the beginning, you're simply taking in facts and we're doing this, this dance of giving them information and how is it landing and we're doing it. Then there's room for curiosity and we can befriend. Let's get a little bit more in depth mm -hmm. here with the story follow state, but also you, you brought up adaptive behaviors. Mm. How do we go from, it's really like, let's say a trauma or a mm -hmm. series to mm -hmm. story follow state to adaptive mm -hmm. behaviors where we're adapting just to get our needs met or to survive maybe. So if we think about neuroception, yeah. um, you know, sort of that below conscious awareness, detection of cues of safety and danger, um, you know, once we recognize how our, how our system works and then we've begun to listen to the stories, then, you know, if we think about neuroception, we think there have to be more cues of safety than danger in order for me to move into ventral. Yeah. So if I can't move into ventral, then, you know, my therapist, my friend, myself, if I have enough observer on board, will say, well, what are the cues of danger in this moment? And then are there any cues of safety I can bring in? So for me, I'm always getting very concrete about what are the cues of danger? So if we're having a conversation and all of a sudden um, you, it feels like something happened, I'm going to stop and go, ooh, what was the cue of danger that came in there? So I'm curious, right? And, and I truly am curious to know because with my clients, if we can map the cues of safety and danger, then we have a, you know, a guide to what needs to happen to make this safe enough to, to do this work. You know, for therapists um, or for people when you're connected with someone and you think, wow, they are just not really trying or they mm. really don't want to do this. If we you know, reframe that through the nervous system, the nervous system is neurocepting way more cues of danger than safety and it can't do whatever it is you happen to be wanting them to do, right? So yeah. the adaptive survival responses come out as in a response to cues of danger. And oftentimes what happens is there's a cue of danger that has a, a bit of familiarity to something in the past. Yeah. And so my nervous system is going to go into that full-blown response because it, it can't discern. So discernment is the next step. Right. We, we move into discernment. And, and the way I like to do that is to simply say in this moment, in this place with these people, is this intensity of response necessary? So that brings it into I get it was necessary then, but I'm not sure it is now. And I just use that basic frame with my clients, you know, in this moment, in this place with me, is it necessary? How do our stories impact our ability to climb the polyvagal ladder? Mm. Yeah, because when you're down at the bottom of the ladder, stuck in that dorsal vagal yeah. story of hopelessness and despair, um, it's hard to to begin to feel some mobilizing energy to climb the ladder. I, I think in the beginning, for many people, climbing out of dorsal um, is is really difficult. I know with my clients in the beginning, it, it's more of a they need a co-regulator, they need somebody to accompany them. It's very hard to do on, on your own. Once you kind of get the hang of it, you can um, begin to reach for some of the resources that, that bring a gent you just want a very gentle 
return of energy because too much is going to be terrifying. You're going to go deeper into dorsal, right? And so you, you begin to leave dorsal. You have to travel through sympathetic, which is where many people get stuck. They get to sympathetic and then they go back to dorsal, sympathetic dorsal. That's a common loop. So what we need is to, is to keep moving through sympathetic. So we have to have our energy used in an organized way and often in connection with somebody else. And then we keep coming up to, up to ventral. But yeah, it's a, that, that's a skill because, you know, none of us are going to spend all of our time in ventral. That's even not the goal. The goal is to be flexible in how you navigate between states. So, you know, when clients get stuck in dorsal and then we make our way to, to ventral, I always tell them, your nervous system knows just how to do this. It, you know, we are just reminding your nervous system. It knows the way back to ventral. And we're going to keep doing it so that it, it remembers it more easily. And one of those things that kind of stops that natural process from happening are the stories that, that we hang yeah. on. I don't want to say hang on to because it's not like we're choosing to, but the stories that we've adopted. Yeah, because our, our, our trauma stories live in sympathetic and dorsal. So when we hit those states, our trauma stories, you know, grab us. They come alive and, and grab us. So absolutely, yeah. I feel like I see a lot of the people I work with climbing from shutdown, from dorsal into pretty much like a fight state first, right? Sympathetic, but usually yeah. it looks like a lot yeah. like fight. And yeah. when they get there and the energy comes up, mm-hmm. that they mm-hmm. then stop climbing the ladder and sort of go, in my mind, it's a parallel. They go parallel and they sort of stay there yeah. or come back down. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, it seems like the story is what kind of keeps them stuck there is the story is, well, it's this person's fault or it's this thing that right. happened or exactly. now we're not moving yep. up anymore. It's just kind of right. stay right. stuck. Yeah. And that's a that's a very common sympathetic story, right? It's, it's a blame story, right? It's an unfair, it's a blame story. So, yeah. So our job when when people come out of dorsal and begin to feel the flavor of uh, sympathetic is to first celebrate. Oh, great! You're mobilizing, and then and let's keep moving up. <laughs> let's figure out how to channel this energy so we keep going up, right? And and again, my work is about really um, being explicit about all this because I think that you know therapy is often this lovely magical thing that happens, but it's a mystery. And I don't yeah. want this to be a mystery to my clients. I want them to become active operators of their nervous systems. So I, I love to narrate the story of what I see happening. You know, and there's a lot of celebrating. Someone begins to come out of doors. Oh, yes, great. You know, that's yeah. not something we hear from therapists very often. That level of transparency, and just based on the interviews and book, like you're, you, you don't hold anything back as far as the language, or the mapping, or the befriending. Like it's all out there. It, and even the, you know, the talk about transparency, you know, uh, I, I can certainly talk, you know, to a client and, and simply say, you know, you know, what, um, come on in and let's sit because my nervous system is still a bit jangled from early this morning. So let's just arrive here together. And then we arrive and they don't need to know why they only need to know that. Right. And because and what I keep telling people is you, you think you can get away with not being regulated with your clients and you can't because their nervous system knows it. Right. It does not matter what you say. Their nervous system knows what's happening inside your system. So, you know, my belief is that we should be honest about that. We should be transparent, not about the reasons about, you know, whatever happened, but the fact that, yeah, you're probably feeling a bit of, you know, dysregulation. So I'm just going to come. And now can you feel that I'm here with you now? Because that's the other end of it. We want our clients to be able to accurately identify when someone they're with is dysregulated, but also accurately identify when they come back into connection. And those things are missing for many trauma survivors, right? Both ends of that. I don't remember ever learning this stuff in school whatsoever. No, no, (laughs) no, (laughs) no. That reaction was great. And it's it's sad because, well, I didn't know I was missing this until the Bagel Theory. Right. And the right. people that message me almost daily basis are saying, why aren't, why isn't my therapist talking about this? And why mm-hmm. didn't we learn this in school? And I don't know if I have a clear answer for that, but 
Well, it was missing. You know, it's 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 new and it's getting out there and you know from from but the amount not, of it's not new though it's been around since 1994 right well on yes, that level right it has, literally it, it, you know it, it really took off when when Steve you know started talking to trauma clinicians and, and trauma clinicians said oh I like this and then you know um, my work taking it and making it clinically accessible has then let people because I get people all the time telling me, oh, I love polyvagal theory, but I didn't know what to do with it. And I went, okay, so here are some things to do. I, you know, it always surprises me that, that, you know, 90 other people didn't do the same thing I did because it's like, I, I see something and it's like, it made so much sense, which is what I hear from people. Oh, that's the missing piece. And then it's like, so what do I do with this? So I teach it to my clients. So, you know, it's, it is, it's finding its way everywhere. It really is. You know, in my trainings, I have doctors and lawyers and teachers and therapists and regular people so they're starting to move it out there yeah yeah the clinical applications <laughs> of the polyvagal theory the book that had <laughs> grief in there it had nursing you had oh, just absolutely wonderful i don't is an article or an essay about your husband and what he went through with the stroke which was just so illustrative of a lot of things but especially the danger cues piece of it which yes. would in in a hospital setting which we typically i think we assume is a benign safe mm, mm, place but mm, you listed yeah. boom 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 yeah, all these danger yeah. cues yeah and it was interesting because when you know when bob had a stroke i of course emailed steve right away and said any suggestions <laughs> and his suggestion was beautiful and also incredibly hard but but what it is our responsibility is you know as humans are loving partners that you know that it's my responsibility to send cues of safety to bob's system so that it can do the work of rehabilitation. That's you know that's what we do with our clients. It's our responsibility to be regulated and offer that regulation to our clients because otherwise they can't engage in the process of change that they want. And if we took that just for a minute to to broaden it out into um, society, you know, if we move through the world from a regulated place and offer that to others, the world will change, right? It, well, it underlies, I think you said, um, you said many times, this is the, it underlies everything we do. The, the, our autonomic nervous system is the mm -hmm. framework, or is that the, a good way to put it? Yeah. It's the platform for our experience. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, parenting, co-regulation is obviously a yeah. big part of it. Cues of safety are a big part of that. We presented yes. to um, some police officers and about polyvagal theory and about cues of safety. Uh, but, you know, mm -hmm. doctors and nurses and those little moments of connection, yeah. glimmers, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just in the, I'm just writing a second book and I love glimmers and now we're going to figure out how to turn glimmers into glows. Oh, okay. You can't <laughs> so leave the, me with that. So, you have to go so, into more. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so the glimmer is that micro moment of ventral vagal yeah. experience that, that truly is like, you know, 10, 20 seconds. That's that, that is its, its purpose is to simply 10, 20 seconds of, Oh, there's a glimmer. Oh, there's one. Right. And then if we can, on the days when we have a little more space and a little more resilience in our system, if we can notice a glimmer and hang out with it and really just invite it in, let it fill us and spend some time and, and listen to the story, then it becomes a glow. That's not easy to do, is it? It's not easy to do. And, you know, we, it, it, that's a practice, you know, in the beginning, um, glimmers, uh, you know, are, are even really hard for, for many of us to find. And again, if you don't have some mm, ventral flavor in your system, you're not going to see the glimmers because you're not set up to find them. Right. Yeah. It, it's the, the thought that popped in my head is it's so easy to stay with the disconnection and the judgments and, the, and those, those types of stories. But I, I think people feel those little glimmers here and there, but to stay with them, to notice them, to honor them yeah. is, is not second yeah. nature or even first nature. If that makes sense. I think it is, but we've lost it. Maybe? Well, it's, yeah, well, it's covered up by your survival response because in a survival response, why would you want to see something beautiful and regulating? That's not going to keep you alive. Right. And so one of the things I do is I invite my clients to, to decide, you know, how many glimmers do they want to see between now and next week? And we'll make an intention to look for them, you know? So maybe you want to look for, you know, three glimmers in a week or one glimmer a day or whatever it is. And then let's see if you can find them. Right. So it's inviting that observation. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you. 
Mm. We, we kind of already touched upon this, but uh, it really struck me. The default state, we kind of touched upon there's this home away from home. And mm. I think when I, mm. when I heard you say default state, it was an interview a while back. Mm. I kind of got sad <laughs> because, oh, because yeah. uh, I'd like to believe that we all have the capability of moving up into ventral, staying do. there, or at least yeah. being at the ability to go back and forth more easily. Yes. Yeah. So to yes. hearing that, hearing that we may have a default state that may, do you think maybe something we're even born with or something that's sort of shaped within us? Yeah, I, I think, I, I think our, I think our system is shaped. I, I think, you know, that whole nature nurture thing. I think there is research that talks about how your nervous system is impacted by your mom's nervous system. Right. So, you know, anxiety, depression have been researched around the, the growing fetus. So we certainly have, have that, but you know, it's that moment you enter the world, you know, how are you met? You know, Absolutely. were you met in loving arms? Were you met with, you know, um, someone who was afraid, you know, we think about um, generational, you know, legacy kinds of um, experiences. And I like to just simply look at the nervous system and say, if my mom grew up in a family system that was dysregulated, then she was probably dysregulated. And if her mom grew up in a system that was dysregulated, so you can track it simply through, you know, the, was the, was the environment regulated or dysregulated? So, you know, and then, you know, we're shaped over our, over our experience that the nervous system is a system of relationship. It's shaped in relationship with others. So, and the, the beauty of that means that it can be reshaped as we go. Right. There's a lot more hope to that than mm -hmm. feeling like you're ill or broken or permanently yeah, traumatized yeah. or there's so much more right. hope to what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think once you help your clients understand that, that they, they join you in that hope, right? I mean, our job is to bring hope. And, you know, I have an absolute belief in the nervous system's ability to reshape. And so I can, you know, absolutely tell that to my clients and then they can join me in that hope. And then in order to keep hope alive, it's our job to track the, the very small changes that happen because our clients can't, can't often see them. And as therapists, we're not trained to, you know, look, you know, reflect every two, three sessions on, oh, what happened differently or what's, what's shifting. And, and we really need to because that's how the nervous system shifts in little ways. And when we notice them, it's like, oh, yeah, a lot of things to celebrate. I love celebrating. You know, it's like, oh, lo look at that. And it's either what's happening differently or some, some clients like what didn't happen, right? Oh, I didn't do this thing I used to, right? I love it. Yeah, I find yeah. myself getting genuinely just so excited when I see those little moments of climbing the ladder, and mm -hmm. as I see them getting stuck or going parallel, though I'll say, "Wait, wait, wait, hold on! Do we you notice right. what happened and what happened within your body?" And to really bring an awareness to the moment, beautiful. Build from there. Beautiful. What are you noticing as far as when people climb the ladder in therapy? What are you noticing as they exit each stage or move up the ladder to the next one? What are some common things that you're noticing? You know, for for. Um... I guess we do have some common themes and then everybody has their individual right. responses, which is why, you know, you do the psychoed about the common themes first so that when you begin to, um, well, when you're in dorsal, um, it's a conservation mode so that, in fact, your your body systems are turned down low, you know, and, and your thoughts are, are ones that, that don't have a lot of energy to them. You can feel, you know, untethered in the world, sort of floaty, whatever, you're, you're alone. You know, the, the thing that stands out to me as a client told me when she was doing her first map, I'm alone where no one will ever find me. Well, can't you just feel that? You know, the, the despair of that. And so when people just begin to have a, a flavor of coming out of that, it, it, you can feel it in the room because all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's somebody there. They're starting to come back. And what I usually notice with my clients is that there'll, there'll, be, a, there'll be a peak, you know, the, a, like a, ooh, you know, just this moment of, of connection. Um, that, that, or or, the, or they'll, they'll, they'll sit up just a little bit. You know, so those are sort of the signs I'm looking for. And then as they enter sympathetic, you're going to get a lot, you're going to get a lot more movement in some way. Right. And which you then need to channel so that when you exit sympathetic to go to ventral, um, there's a there's a relaxation of it. So in sympathetic, you got to discharge energy in some safe way so that when you get to ventral, there's there's this this flow. 
in dorsal, you have to bring some energy in in a, in a safe way. So for me, it's a lot about seeing energy. I, I think that's an easy thing to to see in our clients is the is the energy moving. You know, in in dorsal, there's not a lot of language. In sympathetic, the language is often um, edgy, sharp, harsh, angry, and then you can feel the language change when you get to get to ventral. And I, I like to just go with my clients to say, I'm going on this journey with you. I'm right here with you. You know, because the nervous system <clears throat> wants that language. The nervous system language is about connection, right? So in, in dorsal, you're not alone. I'm right here. I'm not going anywhere. We're going to make the journey together. In sympathetic, you got to be, be a little more matching of their energy. I can really feel that energy right now. And let me join you in that. <laughs> Right. Again, you're you're right yeah. there. And then to ventral, it's like, oh, here we've arrived. Right. You know, I, honestly, in, in school, I keep going back, school was a long time ago, but yeah, <laughs> but we, you know, we were taught the, the, the flat affect neutral observer mm -hmm. kind of thing. And I'm not oh, like that. Oh. That's not my natural. I'm That's an good. empathetic person. Okay. <laughs> I'm That's an empathetic good. person. Because your flat affect is a cue of danger to right. your clients. Yeah, so right. I, I tell people when I do trains, I say, there's just a few things I'm going to ask you to, 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 some things I'll ask you to set aside, you can bring them back later, a couple of things I'm going to ask you to throw out, that's one of them, do not do therapy with a flat affect, because you're a cue of danger, you have become a threat to your clients, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I remember I had a yeah. client way long ago. This was before I knew polyvagal theory, but I naturally like to match their state and stay anchored yes. in. I think you use the word yeah. anchor, ventral yeah. vagal. It's just a natural way of yeah. being. And I remember him saying, yeah. "I didn't know therapy could be like this." And he, ah, he was the, the person before me was very the neutral, flat affect. And they yeah. said, "I didn't know therapy yeah. could be like this." And it's it's um I feel connected, but I'm also the the compassionate ventral vagal place to sort exactly. of like come back, yes. you know, with me. In a way. Yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. That's perfect. That's perfect. And, and you know, if you don't come somewhere close to the energy that their system is bringing, it feels like this. And they're going to go, their nervous system is say, that nervous system has no clue what's happening over here. Their brain may say something else, but the nervous system is going to send a message of misattunement. So, yeah, you gotta you got to meet them from an anchor and ventral. So you really have to be able to have the anchor, but also to be empathetic. Mm -hmm. At the same time, right. and understand and where they're coming from. So, you know, well. for, for, yeah, so anchoring in ventral then allows me to go sit with my client in dorsal and simply be there. I don't need to do anything. I'm just there letting that system feel my system there with them so that the, they don't feel alone. You know, I was teaching the other day, and you know, we think about dorsal as the, the turtle that goes into its shell, right, and, and it's hiding and. and and this lovely guy, he said, well, now it makes sense because to get a turtle to come out of the shell, you don't knock on its shell <laughs> and you don't and you don't shake them. And I said, exactly. You just kind of sit there patiently. So that's what we do. And it and but you have to really be beaming that ventral vagal energy to that system. And then in sympathetic, you 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 know, follow. I like to say in dorsal, I feel like I'm more of a of a guide. I can I can lead the way. I can show the way home. In in sympathetic, I'm following right along with you, right? I'm gonna give a give a few you know structure, but I'm going yeah. with you. Let's do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The turtle images. That's perfect. Isn't that great? I love that. I know. It's I love that. Too. Yeah. Um, so, and someone, so I had a question for you, but someone literally asked me this yesterday. Oh, good. Oh, um, beautiful. Is there a quick way out of these states or is there a typical time period? And I told them, I don't think so. Yeah, no, you know, part, part, of, part of what we're doing when we're doing, um, polyvagal informed therapy or when we're exercising, you know, the nervous system is we're building the ventral capacity so that, which, which is resilience. You know, yeah. The ability to return to ventral when you've been dysregulated in a survival response is resilience in action. So we're, we're hoping to reduce the time that you're dysregulated to have it be less frequent, less intense. Right. Um, but I don't think there's any real time frame. I would say that I think for the most part that um, we move between ventral sympathetic um, all the time fairly quickly. We're made to do that. It's when we hit dorsal that it takes a lot longer to, to make our way back. It does seem, I've, I've noticed with myself that working with someone who's in a shutdown, especially a highly dissociative state, they stay there for, it seems like a long time. And 
on my end, I wouldn't say it's frustrating, but it's it's almost like, what am I doing wrong? What am I not doing? You right. know. So that that yeah. So maybe that's my story. Your job is well, and that <laughs> might be a sympathetic. That happens a lot for for therapists when 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 there's a. a an impasse or when there's a, a client is in a, a dorsal state and they're not coming back as quickly as we'd like, our sympathetic system can, can say, oh, what do I do now? What's the next thing I'm supposed to try? How do I, you know, which then sends that message to the other nervous right, system. Right, right. So if I can just simply be, you know, and again, I'm going to name it. The other thing that I love is notice and name. So just name whatever it is, you know. I, oh, I was noticing that that I had a bit of, of pull towards wanting to, move you so i just want to name that and, and i'm just happy just sitting here with you we can take as much time as your system needs right and i usually talk about the system not you you know as much time not as much uh, time as you need but as much time as your system needs right so yeah but it's up to us to be able to be patient patience in that place patience, patience and I, <laughs> I find patience plus my compassion and genuine excitement for being in the room with someone but also moving at their mm-hmm. pace and being patient yeah yeah and and, and yes absolutely and okay. you remind me of something we were talking before that in that matching somebody i had a client who we'd worked till really long for her to be able to to really identify clearly what state she was in and what she needed and so she would come in sometimes and say deb don't use your kind voice today it's too much for my system and i'd say great i can use this other voice instead <laughs> got it Right. And, and I just loved that. She knew that it would overwhelm her system too much yeah. of that kindness. So I said, I can be ventral with a different energy because ventral has a lot of flavors. And that's what we want to remember. Yeah. A lot of flavors, ventral. Let's switch a little bit here. This is something I've it. really thought on. And I don't know if I have a great answer, but how do you how do you tell if someone's coming up the ladder versus going down the ladder? And I'm, I'm thinking of in particular people who are in a very depressive state. And I'm thinking of Robin Williams who was extremely mm-hmm. depressed, committed suicide, but was the life of the party, extremely active, mm. well in his sort of aggressive humor state. How do you, mm. how do you yep. tell if someone who's just smiling away the pain versus they actually yeah. are happy? Yeah. So I'm going to give you the really simple answer for okay. my clients and for the people in my trainings is I ask them, where are you on your map? Right? I mean, it's just okay. my job. My job is to help them track. Right. And so, you know, so I've been overthinking I, that, this. All right. <laughs> yeah, the guiding, it's kind of the guiding question all the time. Where are you right now? Right. And we think about Robin Williams, you know, with, with, you know, whatever mental health issues were going on there as well. You know, if he, you know, if he'd been sitting with me doing his, you know, humorous whatever, and I said, Where are you on your map? My guess it would be sympathetic. Right. It wasn't ventral. It was not a ventral. It, no. it, it was a, there was a survival piece to it. Yeah. So, you know, I, and when you feel that, the question becomes, where are you right now? Or where are you in your map? Right? And then, you know, five minutes later, so where are you now? You know, and they can get good at saying, oh, I've come up a little. Or I'm, you know, going down a little. Again, one of the exercises in the new book is this tracking across time. And it's like if we take a five-minute period of time, you know, three times over that five minutes, you're going to stop and say, my nervous system state is, and now I am. And now I'm thinking, and then you're going to track it two minutes later because you begin to get the flavor of oh, changes all time, right? Which is what we want our clients to be able to do. And in order for them to do it, we have to show them the way we have to keep inviting them into that connection. So that was maybe a facetious answer, but I just asked him, where are you? <laughs> you know, what about so, someone who's not in therapy and they're, they're really, and I, they, you know, again, I hear this a lot is, well, what's, I can't tell what state I'm in. Oh, so, right. So if you can't, so then that's a perfect opportunity for me to say, okay, so let, let's, let's figure it out, you know, because the, let's find the, the, the landmarks for those three states so that we get a flavor of what happens. And, and again, I usually go back to energy because it's the easiest way for people to understand. Do you feel like you have a ton of energy inside you right now and you can't sit still? Sympathetic. Do you feel like you just have not enough energy to, to want to really do anything? Dorsal. Right. Right. Yeah. Do you yeah. think that people use that energy as a way to prevent from going down into dorsal? Like it is, it is the adaptation to be highly energetic. I keep going to. There's so many yeah. comedians, Chris Farley, John Belushi, yeah. um, and yes. I, Robert Williams, who have a lot of. And I, we're not diagnosing here, yep. but obviously no, have a lot of yeah. stuff going on. But you would never, you could never tell 
just based on the way they present. Right. 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 So, so let's think about sympathetic. So it's, it's the one in the middle, right? It's, it's, and so sympathetic, when you're in sympathetic, you have two, two choices, two ways you can go. You can come back to ventral or go to dorsal, right? And one of the jobs I think of sympathetic is to keep us out of dorsal because dorsal yeah. is the most life-threatening for us as humans. It's the most difficult place to go. So I think sympathetic works really hard to keep you mobilized and to keep you, because if it calms down, the worry is you're going to go to dorsal, not come to ventral, right? My, my hope is that as we calm down, we come to ventral. But many, many, for many clients, that's not been the experience. And so they're going to stay in sympathetic because the alternative is dorsal despair. So it kind of keeps you highly mobilized as a way to prevent going completely mm -hmm. into a, a shutdown state. Mm -hmm. But that's, mm -hmm. and we're looking for the calm of actual stillness. Not the calm of you're still, but you're right. not present. Right, right. And so, the, and and I think stillness is the most complicated autonomic blend of states because as we, how do you um, come into quiet, into stillness without stimulating shutdown? That's it's a tricky thing to do, especially for people who have a, a trauma history where because stillness is is a very vulnerable place, right? I have to really feel safe to come into stillness. So, it has yeah. to have a lot to do with laying down to go to sleep and yeah. all of the yeah. anxieties that come along with that. Right. Because think how vulnerable that is to lie down and, you know, and go to sleep, really, you know, let go. And then, you know, for many people, um, it's that's hard enough. But then try sleeping next to another nervous system. Right. And how complicated that is. So how many people don't sleep in the same bed or the same room with with the people they they share a house with or, or share a, share a life with because it is just too challenging for their nervous system. Are you noticing any um, typical or predictable sensations, feelings, temperature changes, heart rate things that are that people are reporting in session um, as as they're climbing the ladder? Yeah. So so when you begin to you know you've got a you probably have a very low heart rate in, in dorsal and and you know not a lot of not a lot of energy and, and a fuzziness to your to your thinking and so as you start to mobilize you can feel you feel you feel your muscles coming back um online you can feel your heart rate if you're you know if you're connected to your heart your breath is going to change and and watching breath is often a, a, a nice cue for what's happening Right. Because um, in dorsal, you wonder, was my client breathing still? <laughs> right. It's like, can I see it? <laughs> and then in sympathetic, it's really right there. And then, you know, you come to ventral and it's it's better. So, yeah, you, you really see it in, in the if you see it in the body. You see it in, in um, dorsal has a, 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 a collapse, of course. And, and you can you can see the slump sort of that that's sort of this and sympathetic can can. Um, can look um, edgy or hard or it, or jerky, you know, it's got that kind of stuff. And then there, there's this lovely sort of, you know, integration that happens in ventral. How are you doing on time? Just a real quick pause here. It's 47 minutes. Are you okay on time? Or I'm fine. I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. I'm having fun talking polyvagal. Me too. I, I'm really <laughs> yeah. enjoying this. Um, well, there's a whole new, whole other topic that I have. I'd love to get some thoughts on, which is diagnosis. Like, and the... yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. It is, it is the bane of our clinical existence, isn't it? You know, and, and it's interesting because um, I think Dan Siegel in Interpersonal Neurobiology talked about, you know, you could use every diagnosis in the DSM as, as um, a disorder of chaos or rigidity. And I think Steve and I would say through the lens of polyvagal theory, almost every diagnosis in the DSM is a dysregulated nervous system, right? So, you know, I get that many of us have to diagnose to be um, reimbursed for our services. Um, I, I probably shouldn't even say this on a webinar, but, you know, it's, it, I just. I can edit it out if you want to say it and you, it, you think it, twice it, about it, I'll take it out. You know, put it out there that you give a client a diagnosis, it follows them forever, right? And I'm very careful about that, very careful, because 
first of all, I don't think they're they're useful in, in a lot of ways. And, and then it's something that's going to be on their record forever. So my favorite, you know, and, and I will say I don't have to diagnose anymore, which is lovely. I don't bill insurance companies. But my favorite when I did was adjustment disorder. Because it is, mm. it is one of the few diagnoses that, that is a response to a stressor and goes away when that has been resolved. That feels absolutely autonomically um, in line with me. That your nervous system is dysregulated because of this thing. Absolutely. And as you can regulate your nervous system, then that diagnosis is going to go away. So, you know, but I mean, you could probably look at you know, anxiety, the anxiety ends of things is more sympathetic, the um, depression things is more dorsal. So, you know, when I'm working with people who are wanting to bring this lens into their assessment and treatment, I say, well, your your assessment is is really, I know you have to do that assessment piece of paper, but what you're looking at is not so much what happened but what was your client's response to what happened? What was their autonomic response to what happened? And then you can begin to frame their dynamic formulation through their autonomic challenges and their autonomic um, um, things they do well, right? You don't have to talk so much about these other things. You can simply talk about, you know, a nervous system that has been shaped through experience to struggle with connection, to move into dorsal, to, you know, you can talk that way. Right. That's not what people are being taught in school, Deb Dana, not at all. No, it's not. It's really it's not. not. I, you know, and I will say when, when I was um, had a full-time practice and billing all the time and I would write my assessments and write my notes and write my treatment plans. And, you know, I always had this sort of in the back of my head sort of wish that somebody out there in the insurance world was reading them and would call me up and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Can you tell me? <laughs> <laughs> because then you could have the conversation, you know, never you mean, happened, but <laughs> you mean you put the language of the door, uh, polyvagal. I've started doing that as mm-hmm. well. Is it just, yep. So maybe someone honest. will call you and say, Justin, tell me what you're talking about. Cause I don't understand it. And then you can, I, I always think it's an opportunity to teach. Right. Luckily I work in a school system that does not diagnose. And I love it yeah. because when I was doing I... it for the County, it just, it never felt mm-hmm. right. And I knew I had to, but right. a lot of times I was, I was, I was thinking, I how I don't, why am I labeling yeah. this? Of course, this person is in a more of a shutdown place, or of course they're upset. Of course they're disconnected. Why am I diagnosing this? Any one of right. us could have, could have been there, but, mm-hmm. but, um, that's yeah. not the way we talk yeah. about it openly. And I know where there's a lot of destigmatization of mental health, which is fantastic, mm-hmm. but this is not mm-hmm. how we talk about it. We talk about it as if people are born this way or right. that they right. have a thing that's inflicting them. That's, and let's give them a med to fix it. Right. Yeah. Which seems more yeah. stigmatizing to me than anything else to tell mm-hmm. someone that you're, mm-hmm. well, people are just born this way mm-hmm. or people mm-hmm. have an illness or people have, I am mm-hmm. bipolar or I am ADHD. Right. right. That seems right. a lot more stigmatizing right. than yes. anything yes. else. Absolutely. And I love that you're working in a school because you have the opportunity to educate the teachers, the parents, yeah. everybody. And so everybody can begin to talk the same language and, and look through the same lens, which would be pretty magnificent, wouldn't it? That's my big goal is to have mm-hmm. this type of language of shutdown, yeah. flight fight, mm-hmm. of being safe and social, mm-hmm. to have that be. And it's so understandable. Just you hear the words, you just get it. And you don't have to have a special training in it whatsoever. It's just teachers mm-hmm. can get that. Mm-hmm. Cops can get mm-hmm. that. Parents can get that. And a, a first grader can get it too. He, he got it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I was thinking, you know, kind of brainstorm with someone about a school setting the other mm. day and the teacher who has you know 28 32 however many nervous systems there in front of them to to regulate can't do it on their own they can be sort of the the safe base but wouldn't it be cool if every kid could identify where they are and the ones yes. who are ventral could, <laughs> the ones who are ventral could go help the ones who aren't yes it would right be. and because then the next day the ones who aren't are and the ones who aren't and they all they all help each other i mean that would be be my wish that because it's about co-regulation right that's that's what this is about well we've kind of already addressed the last question i had here which is does the mental health profession we've talked about the schooling having Mm -hmm. a new language but as mental health professionals Mm -hmm. a new language seems more polyvagal form might be really helpful i think it would be really helpful and what i do when i um i know i listened to one of the interviews that 
you did with Steve and he talked about you're a member of our polyvagal family. You know, we, we, uh, um, did, yeah, are yeah. gathering a yeah, polyvagal family. When, when Steve and I first work started working on the, the edited collection together, he would send me names and say, here's another member for our polyvagal family. And then when I would go out and teach, I would tell everybody, you're now a member of our polyvagal family. And as the family grows, you know, we have a shared language and that then, um, it becomes a shorthand, right? Which is helpful. So, yes, I would love to see, you know, that polyvagal language and and shorthand be be out there more in the helping professions. Well, I will keep working on it. Um, I do Thank have you. possibly the most important question I've saved for last. I didn't send you this oh, in the outline. Uh-huh. Are you okay. ready? I'm ready. All right. So I have my polyvagal trinity. You are one of three people, um, <laughs> Dr. Porges, Dr. Levine as well. All right. Mm-hmm. So the question is, I call it the polyvagal trinity. It's no religious context. It's actually the DC comic book Trinity is, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. is Wonder Woman, <laughs> Batman, and Superman. I didn't well, ask Dr. Porges this, unfortunately, but I'm going to ask you, which of the three polyvagal Trinity members, Wonder Woman, Batman, Superman, which one would you would you like to claim? You, you can claim that, oh, well, that I'm member. I'm definitely going to be Wonder Woman. And actually, I bought a <laughs> Wonder Woman bracelet after I did went you? to see the – I did after I went to see the movie. When, what with a friend? We had the best time, and I thought, mm, yep, Wonder Woman. I'm going to take some of her energies. You didn't even mm-hmm. have to think about that. No, no. that's uh, She's pretty amazing, I yeah. have to say. Oh, yeah. She is pretty amazing, yeah. Okay. Yeah, she had the – and, you know, it's interesting because there's this experience, this autonomic experience we have of, of – it's called elevation, and it's when we um, – our nervous system has this mix of sympathetic and, and ventral. And it's you see someone doing a good deed, and you are then pulled to want to become a doer of good deeds yourself. And that was the experience I had watching with the Wonder Woman movie. I left there thinking, change the world. Let's – what are we doing? So I'm taking Wonder Woman. Yep. All right. It's claimed. So that leaves Dr. Porges or Peter Levine with Batman and or Superman. Do you think one of those fits the other one? Batman's more the brain. Oh, they're both pretty smart. But Batman's let more. Them fight that one out. <laughs> well, thank you for giving me a shot. I hope this was um, uh, a good experience for you. I know it's going to be a great experience for the people listening. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay. All right, my friend. Take thank care. You. All right. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I highly recommend buying her book, The Polyvagal Theory in Therapy. There's a link in the show notes. Also, the book she co-edited with Dr. Porges, Clinical Applications of the Polyvagal Theory, is fantastic. And if you're like me, you're just as excited about her next book that she teased in our little chat here. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoy speaking with her. Take your favorite idea from this episode and share it with a friend or on your social media. I'm going to have a slew of quotes that I'll be using from this, but my favorite topic was about diagnosing. I loved hearing her say that diagnosis is the bane of our clinical existence. I'd love to see what you got out of this episode. So tag me on what you share and thank you again for listening. So is it okay if I just call you Deb Dana? I always refer to you as Deb Dana. <laughs> I know. You know, it's so funny because I was somewhere and there was there was a little kid who I was friends with with um with the the parents and I think he thinks my name is Deb Dana. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it's so funny. So I refer to you and Dr. Portis and Peter Levine constantly yeah. on the podcast. Oh, so is, it just rolls. So I off have the to tongue. say, for me, being in the same breath with Steve and Peter is a lovely thing. Oh, so come thank on. you. Oh, thank absolutely. You. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.